0: good morning before I before I start I want to say that was absolutely beautiful um, that that piece that you sang it really uh, it's been a while since I've heard something that that moving and beautiful thank you for that Um, two years ago on Ash Wednesday I found myself in the position of speaking here in chapel just before the inauguration of a new CLU president and I tried to find a way to help us think about that occasion in connection with the beginning of Lent, the season in which we contemplate descent into the underworld and the compromised and contingent nature of human life. In retrospect, I know that should have been easy, um, but I didn't know then what I know now. This week, we mark the end of Lent and the beginning of Easter, the season in which Christians celebrate the triumph of life over death. In a couple weeks, we will inaugurate our new president, our new president, uh, Chris Kimball. I personally hope we can read something into the the liturgical timing of these inaugurations, that the metaphors of life and death have been properly distributed. In any case, given my own track record of speaking before inaugurations, all I can say is good luck, Chris. Whatever the ups and downs of our common life together, here at CLU and wherever, wherever we make our homes, the rites of Holy Week have been observed in a predictable, cyclical, liturgical pattern for hundreds and hundreds of years. And by contrast, they can remind us that the vicissitudes of life um, are not only unavoidable, but that they are sacred because they open up a space in which human need meets the unchanging, relentless, divine love. If being fallen means that we are subject to difficulty, transgression, and rivalry, it also means that we are conditioned for grace and redemption, grace that often breaks through and makes itself known in moments of deprivation and brokenness. Now, I must confess that since this is also a time of confessions, that I myself have a much easier time identifying with the Lenten Jesus than with the uh, Easter Jesus. And I'd venture a guess I'm not the only one. I can meditate on death and finitude and suffering and tragedy until dust starts to settle on my nose. I can really dig some good old-fashioned Lenten self-deprivation and penance in order to dwell on the transience of the creaturely life. I often find myself fascinated by saints such as Simeon the Stylite, a 5th-century Syrian monk who lived for 37 years at the top of a pillar, taking only one meal a week in order to transcend the fleshly, material world. Simeon was one of the many who have attempted to follow Paul's teaching in Galatians that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Of course, such a practice always contains its own contradictions, especially in its potential to produce feelings of self-righteousness. If you worry that self-deprivation, prayer, fasting, repentance, and so on, might lead you to celebrate your own holiness, and piety during a time like Lent or Holy Week, Simeon, the pillar dweller, can help you with this. Evagrius tells us in his ecclesiastical history that uh, after 30-some-odd years of living on top of this pillar, Simeon was afflicted with an ulcer on his leg. He interpreted this ulcer as divine punishment for a brief moment, a fleeting moment, when he suffered a vague sense of pride. And I often wonder, for what? Because his pillar was higher than the others? I I don't know. Um... (laughs) As penance, he then stood continuously on his good leg for the remainder of his life. Now, before we rush to judge Simeon and conclude that he had no operative category of grace, that perhaps he was too obsessed with his own lowly existence, I should also mention that despite his own self-mortification, Simeon always taught his, his admirers that they need not follow his path, but that they should live lives of compassion because the abundant gifts God had given them in Christ. He apparently understood the nature of grace very well, and this was paradoxically his way of telling people about it. So now we're into Holy Week when Christians around the world ritually memorialize the sentencing, death, and burial of Jesus before arriving at Easter Sunday and the resurrection faith. Today we heard a really rich passage from John's Gospel in which Jesus foreshadows the mechanism by which he will come to die a passage that includes many familiar characters, Jesus, Judas, Peter, and so on. It also marks the first reference uh, in John's gospel to a a, a sort of mysterious figure who shows up only in John, whom John calls the beloved disciple, or literally the one whom Jesus loved. The identity of this figure has been a matter of debate since about the second century, and while it's an interesting question, I think it can distract us from focusing on the the meaning of the passage, or, or what the scene itself really depicts for us. Just for fun, let's, let's imagine it. Jesus is reclining and he announces that one of the disciples will betray him. Peter asks the beloved disciple to ask Jesus who it will be. It's already getting a little bit weird socially. Um, the beloved disciple who is reclining next to Jesus um, asks Jesus in a way that apparently the other disciples do not hear. Because when Jesus dips the morsel and hands it to Judas, the other disciples appear to miss the significance of this gesture. The only ones who know what is happening are Jesus and the beloved disciple, and they're not telling. Jesus then sends Judas out in a show of authority, and Judas goes about his business as if he, too, did not understand what it was he was about to do. Now, this is a very strange scene, but it's perhaps not as strange as the way some Christians have interpreted it, uh, have, have interpreted the meaning of Judas's betrayal. In some parts of Poland, for example, I love this, Children traditionally hurl an effigy of Judas from the steeple of the local church. You're already thinking about ideas for next year, I know. Um, It is usually then dragged, this, this effigy of Judas is then dragged through the village, pounded with sticks and stones, and whatever is left is drowned in a nearby river or pond. This performance is evidently a way of ritually purging the Judas in each of us, or in each of the participants, perhaps also a kind of striving to be more like the beloved disciple than like the greedy turncoat. But it's also just a bit disturbing, because it tells us something about ourselves, too. We really should look to either side of the passage to understand it better. Just before this scene, Jesus washes the feet of the disciples and tells them that they are to serve others. Just after the scene, Jesus issues a new commandment, that the disciples are to love one another just as Jesus has loved them. The betrayal scene is thus sandwiched by the command to love and to serve in a way that is radically different from the way of the world. It is, in a word, the way of the cross, which John is foreshadowing in this episode. The betrayal and death marked by Judas are contrasted with the new life and the, uh, and the new being of the kingdom that Jesus embodies, and apparently shares with his beloved disciple. But be- the beloved disciple is a neat little device that John uses to encourage his readers that maybe, just maybe, we are more like him than like Judas. The betrayal scene is part of the Last Supper in the other Gospels, um, and it's only in John that Judas is actually sent away from the, the, uh, the, the scene. And in John, Judas is the only one who actually eats anything. If we compare it to the other Gospels, um, this scene is part of the Last Supper, but John does something a little bit different with this. Instead, John presents a Last Supper-like scene in chapter 6, where Jesus speaks words over bread and wine in a very public fashion at the Sea of Galilee, not just with his disciples, but publicly, declaring that he gives his flesh, quote, for the life of all the world. It is not just to his disciples that he gives life, but to all the world. With these things in mind, and and since I teach environmental ethics, and since it's Earth uh, Month, and we're approaching Earth Day, I'll take the opportunity to sort of twist this in the direction um, of of reading this betrayal scene in this way. As theologian Sally McFaig has asked, should we not extend to the natural world the model of loving others as having intrinsic worth and hence deserving of justice and care? If the Redeemer is the Creator, then surely God cares also for the other 99% of of creation, not just for the less than 1% that humans constitute. Do we betray God and the Spirit in the way we use and abuse the natural world? Do we betray Christ by assuming it is merely our human souls that are the focal point for God's redemptive work? We've come to a point in the history of human culture and civilization when we are pressing the limits of what the Earth can do to sustain our habits. With its extreme anthropocentrism, its teleology of progress, and its tendency towards systemization, Christianity has perhaps unwittingly laid the foundation for the rise of Western science and technology by its objectification of the natural world and its instrumental view of the environment as containing resources for human mastery and development. Of course, science and technology are not inherently bad things, nor is development. That's not my point. Um, Christians are not solely responsible for the degradation of the environment, but we have been also painfully slow, especially in the West, to take a good hard look at how our theological and cultural presuppositions impede any serious evaluation of our ways of being in the world. Consumerism and debt, ecological crisis, and spiritual vacuity have tended to go hand in hand, especially in the context of a value system that equates personal identity and success with the possession of symbols of power and social status. These are the things that Judas was after. So I leave you with some food for thought. Is faith merely about one's own well-being and eternal reward, or does it offer or even demand a radically different way of being in the world? Is it not the case that Judas, who is absorbed primarily with his own individual self, is the enemy in the story? Is it not the case that he betrays not only Jesus, but also the community, or what I would even call the ecology of discipleship, which which depends on a robust conception of relationships? Can we extend this notion of relationship to include all members of our ecosystems, Must we wait for the life that comes from love or do we embrace it now in the present? Is the resurrection only a sign of future human redemption or is it a mark of Christ's continuing presence with us and with all of creation in all its grand diversity? Does all our striving after righteousness and goodness miss the main point, which is that we must simply love the abundant life that is offered to us now, not in terms of material wealth, but in terms of relationships, enjoyment, and compassion. Since April is also Poetry Month, I'll close with one of my favorite poems by a poet named Mary Oliver. It's called Wild Geese, and it's about the grace of simply being in the world and having the boldness to love it. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. This finding our place of being, as Paul Tillich told us a few decades ago, takes a kind of radical, creative courage that is both ethical and ontological. In other words, it requires saying yes to a way of being that we do not fully understand, of grounding our existence not in ourselves but beyond ourselves. And it requires living in such a way that we recognize that we are in relationship with everything that surrounds us and that it is easier to to succumb to the way of death than to embrace the fullness of all life.